Hey guys, it's Robert Gardner with the Robert Gardner Wellness Podcast. I'm happy to have my coffee-drinking colleague, Walt Fritz. Hopefully, we'll be a little less stuck on camera this time. But uh, Walt, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast again. Can you tell people a little bit about you and your background? Yeah. Hi, hi, Robert. Good to be with you again. Yeah, you're drinking coffee. It's a little late for coffee for me here, but I'm Walt Fritz. I'm a physical therapist uh, from upstate New York, the Rochester, New York area. I've been a um, clinician for a lot of years in terms of my physical therapy practice. I have a background in myofascial release, which some of you may know me from, some of me you may despise me from for various reasons, <laughs> but that that that's all cool because uh, you know some people are not fond of the myofascial release. Some people are not fond that I left the myofascial release model and have maybe the guts to talk about it. So. You know, and otherwise, I'm just a nobody to a lot of you people. And I, I've been teaching myofascial release related work since '95 uh, when I was working with John Barnes for about 10 years, and then I left his his show and started my own line of seminars in the uh, mid 2000s. Since then, it's sort of been a, a constant piece of a process of evolution. Moving from, you know, everything's about the fascia, emotions are stored in the fascia, all of that stuff that maybe some of you are really accustomed to, that that narrative of MFR or some of the other energy-based or emotion-based or fascial-based narratives. But in the last 10 years, I've really taken a long, hard look at myself, my, intellectually honest, my intellectual honesty and dishonesty, and, and really kind of started to strip down what I believe, how I view the effects of our hands or our bodies, if it's your feet, it's your hands, whatever, working. Can we truly select a tissue for intervention? Can we truly reach into a person's body, find a fascia, a nerve, something in distress, and selectively and in an isolated fashion intervene on that tissue without intervening with the human being that we're touching? All right. So that's really become who I am and how I teach. About a year ago, I rebranded my work away from myofascial release, finally, much to the um, chagrin of some people and to the glee of others who were sort of supporting me in this uh, evolutionary process. And now I just call what I do manual therapy. It's a touch-based intervention where we're touching a human being, not their tissues. We're affecting a human being and not their individual tissue structures or pathologies. And I teach my foundations of myofascial. Ah, boy, boy, just screwed up there. Foundations in manual therapy. It's only been a year, Robert. <laughs> I teach my foundations in manual therapy uh, seminars uh, right now around the world, which is pretty cool being able to travel that way, but primarily in the United States to massage therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech pathologists, as well as an occasional uh, physician or chiropractor or osteopath coming along for the ride. So in a, in a multiple sentence uh, bio, Robert, that's who I am. Nice. It's um, always interesting to me to see how much your thinking has, like, without force, like, it's not a cult leader, you know, thing. It's just your your thinking and the, the ongoing interaction has influenced the way I teach and the way I look at my own work. And the disheartening part is when I think about it, how many massage therapists now don't follow me and don't study with me because they feel like I'm taking the magic out of their work. And when I say magic, they're like, no, we don't, we're not interested in science. And I go, wait, what? (laughs) We're, we're using space technology to communicate guys. Like, Oh, 
as soon as I started to openly just question, and you have to understand I'm a philosophy student, and, and, I, and I wouldn't come in and say, well, we're not actually working on specific, specific muscles. We're actually engaging a skin and, you know, accessing the nervous system of nerves. Yeah. If yeah. I do that, it, it's a little, it puts them off. And I go, hey, guys, when yeah. we make contact, you know, with a tissue, and let's say, let's say we're intending to work on the bicep. You know, are we actually working on the bicep or are we, you know, accessing the skin over the bicep, which is accessing, you know, nerves related to that muscle? I would just kind of, yeah. I kind of wait, I just try to walk them in. It, it's yeah. way, like if I throw them in the deep end of the pool, they're going to drown. And yeah. I was a philosophy student. I'm very happy asking questions. But yeah. what I found over time is that philosophical thinking is very problematic when they just want to be told the truth by a cult leader who dispenses it and then they believe it in a way that's unerring. Yeah. And so I got to so stop contrary. you there. Just, I yeah. got, I got to put, I have to put a disclaimer in there just because you're talking about a <laughs> cult leader. I, we are not referring to anybody in particular um, to keep the lawsuits threats at a minimum here, Robert. So oh, no. uh, give, I'm talking, given, I'm given, talking Jim Jones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. So given certain people's past uh, behaviors, oh, okay. I, I want to yeah. I, I definitely do that. You know, there's an interesting piece of all that, you know, the concept of causation. Causation is, as a physical therapist, as a massage therapist, the way I, I the way they was taught this work, we, we're sort of led down this path of causation being the, the problem of the, the muscle, the problem of the fascia, the problem of the, the structure, that there's something wrong from a cause perspective to that structure, which is creating the problem. But, you know, you're a philosophy student, that's your background, and I'm kind of getting into it backward now in my 60s. And the concept of causation is incredibly complex to the point where we'll never truly know causation of anyone's problem of our own problems because it's so multifactorial and a lot of it is more of a philosophical construct than it is a biologic construct right and getting back into the concept one of my favorite things to say in a, in a live workshop that i'm teaching anymore is you know if you have a belief that you have the ability to you know access the masseter oh i feel the masseter is in spasm there's a trigger point there there's a fascia restriction whatever you're talking about right and you you know you palpate and you know where the masseter is <clears throat> it seems chunky and crunchy and all that stuff right i mean you say oh it's got to be the masseter the person's jaw hurts but as soon as we touch them as soon as we touch our patients as soon as the signal goes from here to here as soon as the patient's awareness becomes a part of your touch, you've doubled the number of possibilities for impact. Muscle, or muscle, yeah, there's a good one. The, the muscle, <laughs> as well as the patient's um, self-awareness having a neurologic influence on what might be done in terms of the reaction, the action and the reaction to the touch. And that's one way to, that I try and sort of, you know, don't drop them in the, in the deep end, but maybe put them in that place where the rope is, right? Where they can still touch other tippy toes, but they're not just really safe in that, oh yeah, we're all about muscles in this group or we're all about fascia in that group. Because every one of those silos that we enter into, Robert, each one has their walled off little silo that we, you know, we just play with our friends there. But go to the rope, start peeking into the deep end and realize that, you know, there's so much more when we touch somebody that's being processed by the human being that we're touching and not just that thing we think we're doing to their tissue. Though I don't consider myself Buddhist, my spiritual leanings are deeply influenced by elements of 
Hinduism from yoga and meditation and Buddhism, a Asian. So, and this is a little bit of my history. I, I studied philosophy in school, which was the history of Western philosophy. We didn't learn anything about Eastern philosophy. It wasn't until later until I started encountering yoga because I was working on my own body because of physical pain that I stumbled into Hinduism and stumbled into Buddhism and stumbled into these traditions that had different practices like yoga and meditation. Practices, I may add, that were tools that didn't require a certain belief. Like yoga as a tool, meditation as a tool, I started using these things and I went, right, right, oh, right. wow, this is interesting. But I never once thought that when they studied advanced meditators and they said, oh, it looks like there's an area of their brain that deals with our spatial awareness that decreases and then their sense of like spreading out increase, like all these things that meditators would explain that happened to them from years and years of essentially hacking their own nervous systems, their own yeah, brains and yeah. spinal cords. I never felt like that diminished the effect of what meditation was by understanding what was happening in the brain. If anything, it sort of opened this portal for a different sense of understanding and an affirmation of these practices and their benefit. Mm -hmm. When I talk to massage therapists who essentially insist on, well, no, I want it to be magic. I want it to be my energy, you know, pouring into this person. And I go, Blah. my handle on <laughs> chakras, for instance, and I can have this conversation with students. My handle on chakras is more of an energetic understanding of a manifestation of some sort of human experience than we dissect people and find a heart chakra. Like, and I exactly. literally do this. Like, I, I'm, I'm a philosophy student who was schooled in comparative mythology and Joseph Campbell, and I looked at this stuff, and I had a little icon of, of Jesus, a Catholic Jesus I got from Baton Rouge years ago at a thrift store, and it's got the glowing, the sacred heart of Jesus. And I'm like, that's the heart chakra, right? And people are like, no, that's not... No, that's not the same thing at all. And I'm like, no, the halo, that's the, the crown chakra, right? And they're mm -hmm. like, no, that's not the same. And I'm like, yeah. Like, at what point do we take poetry and say, no, this is concrete prose. This right, is to be right. taken as a fundamentalist. This is bedrock history. And I'm like, right. ah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you know, the more. Okay, so the more. Okay, so I used to be over there, right? I used to be over there. When I had hair, I was over there in that, you know, the, the, the full metaphysical aspect of Mount Hashirulis. And then when I found religion and, and, so to speak, and the religion was science, so to speak, of, of and I left Mount Hashirulis and that community, I kind of went way over on a pendulum swing to the um, neurocentric end. And now, you know, pendulums tend to eventually stop. And I'm kind of somewhere in between. I'm still recognizing the art of our work. Right, because all of our work has an aspect that one might call art, and I think attracts a lot of people, massage therapists and otherwise, attracts it to a work that is often very rigid and clinical and sterile and clean. But yet, there's something about our work, and I don't want to say it's dirty and gritty, but there's something about that seems on that magical end of things because it is about human experiences. Okay, so the artwork of our work. I don't know that I, I, for a while, I was kind of just shoving that to the side because I wanted nothing to do with my past. But now I'm recognizing that we do have, there is an art to our work. There is a relationship to our work, a therapeutic relationship, which I think is probably responsible for a lot more of the outcomes that we get with our patients than we were taught. And we really want to believe because we want it to be about 
what we paid money for, which is the the technical skills, the, you know, all that science related to that niche that you learn. And all of those things matter. They seem to work. But what is it that, that draws all of those really disparate mo- models, much like disparate religions, right? But disparate models of manual therapies and massage. What is it about all them that gives us the ability to help people? And I think a lot of it is, is the human interaction, the human relationship that we build with people. And I think that's part of the art of this work that goes unstated by a lot because it, it people want to feel like they're, they're becoming skilled. I don't want to use the word technicians because it's, it's often looked down upon, but mastering the principle um, of a silo-based approach, which is cool. Just don't, you know, don't swallow the whole thing mm-hmm. and 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 think that you actually have the ability to reach fascia to the way no one else can, because it ain't happening. And the evidence supports that, even though your colleagues don't. I Disagree with me, Robert. No, 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 I don't don't disagree. It's more like translating the same thing in like different words. Yeah. And I remember having a a conversation with Kristen, who's one of my apprentices here in Austin that I work with regularly. And it was kind of like, I think it was something like, you know, is it really important what we do in session? Or is it like how the client feels about what we're doing? I think it's important that we do. And I, and I was that, like... That we I, do, right? I, I told her it was kind of like, you know, I really feel like it's not your knowledge of anatomy. It's more like 70% plus is just like the connection with the client and communicating with them. Right, right. And for me, like when I look at the way you influence my practice, there are certain things that I do manually that I picked up from you, but it wasn't like I wasn't manually interacting with tissue that way before. The difference was Walt gave me permission to go, hey, how does that feel? Not, do you think this is important? Do you how, think this is relevant, how does right? This, not how does this make you yep. think? Yeah. What What is this logically? I'm like, no, how does this feel? And they're like, ooh, what is that? And I go, yeah. oh, is that is that interesting there? What is that? You know, are you, are you getting like a sensation or the problem was the student sometimes I give them sequences and I understand that they need techniques to be able to use and I don't fight that, but it's almost like they're watching video and glossing over the fact that I'm actually, they're, they're kind of like this. They want a sequence. They want a protocol. Robert, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I say, okay. Have you asked the client what's going on with them? And they're like, what? But no, I just want to know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, each client has different issues. The way that I interact with them is going to be based on what they're telling me the problem is. And then a manifestation of what techniques I know how to use. In addition, and I think the third most important part is I just communicate with them. Right. That's where I'll, I'll, yeah. there's complexity. I'll add one more thing. Their reaction to everything that you just said, their reaction to how you approach them, their reaction to how you touch them, what they feel when you're touching them, I think should be one of the big drivers of our, of our therapeutic relationships versus here's what's best for you, patient. You don't know what I know. It's about tempering our egos back down and say, you know what? Here's what I feel. Here's what I think. Here's what I, I found. What do you feel? 
right? Do you feel what I'm doing right now is relevant, important, familiar? Is it, does it feel like it might be useful or are we wasting our time or do you feel like I might harm you, right? We all are taught, most of us are taught in our, inter, in our manual therapy training, a certain level of pressure is being correct, right? If you're, if you're learning craniosacral therapy, you know, that, that super light pressure is not only best, but it's the, it's the most you want to do. So you don't you do certain things. If you're doing deep tissue, it's like the other end of the spectrum. Can both of these, those accurately just pinpoint one tissue, or are you really just sort of honing in on a person's preference? Because I can guarantee you, if you're looking for deep tissue, you're going to leave that craniosacral therapist after a session, no matter how well of a seller they are, and vice versa for the deep tissue work, if you really appreciate light work, right? So the fact that we're, the fact that we are touching and communicating and willing to have an equal shareholder in our patient, I think it can be a motivator as well as a efficacy builder. I want to go back for one second because you said something earlier about, you know, the style of work we do. And there's a, this, this paper kind of um, irritates people sometimes, but I, I, I kind of like that. The, uh, there's a paper that was done in 2011 and we'll, you know, we'll link this in your show notes here. I think it was 2011, but it's basically, they were comparing two types of massage for chronic low back pain. One was very specific medical clinical massage for low back pain from whatever framework that they came in that study. And the second was relaxation massage. And what they looked at was six-month long-term outcomes. And what they found is across the board, outcomes were about the same, which is really irritating to some people because <laughs> relaxation massage um, isn't specific, right? It's, it's, it's like it's not serious stuff, but the, so in, I mean that's how you and I have been sold this stuff. No, if you want to get to the root of an orthopedic or neurologic problem, you need to take this training to learn this very specific model. Which you know what? Sometimes that did give gives us good outcomes, but to say that we have better outcomes than anybody else, just because somebody walked in our door and said, "You know what? I tried the this other person; they didn't help me," and you help them, therefore you feel like, "Well, my work is more effective than that work." But that is that's like going back into the, the philosophy of causation. It's so complex to say why one intervention worked and one didn't, okay? But when you look at some of studies like this, and there's a few others out there like that, that compare two different styles and show that basically they're having the same sort of long, short and long-term output or um, outcome, which challenges us, which, which pisses us off because it's like, no, I paid money to be a, clini a, a master clinician, and you're telling me that that person doing relaxation massage may have the same effect. May. I didn't say can, right, or will, but may. And I, did, I think that goes back to, I think it's a part of the relationship that we build versus the, the magic we think we're doing with our hands or to their tissues. Teaching on camera as much as I do. I'm running four cameras in my studio, like flipping live when I do trainings with Kristen or anybody else. So when Kristen works on me, this happens all the time. I like uh, big, broad, deep pressure sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in, in my experience, it's broad. So I use my feet, legs, knees, mm -hmm. like uh, different tools than maybe some therapists are familiar with. And when Kristen works on me all the time, I'm like, ooh, ooh, you know, can you back off just a little bit? And then... She realizes she can eventually, you know, be standing on me or using pretty broad pressure, mm -hmm. but I have to kind of build up to that. And then we have these conversations about uh, suspension, which is like, you know, so you can basically have some support so you can push mm -hmm. against it, 
a decreased pressure if you're doing like double footed compressions, things like that. And she really likes, you know, deep compression as well. But there's this ongoing process of communication back and forth. And I think what's also instructive is some days it's different. Some days yeah. I can't take the deep pressure. Yeah. Some days a little lighter pressure with a different, like a forearm or a different tool works better. Yeah. And it, it's so variable because I'm the guy, right? Like I'm the teacher, but my body on some days just seems to respond differently for, for different reasons. That's where there's a certain softness. Like I can use deep pressure and I, I love giving therapists what I always tell them. I'm giving them more tools, just a broader mm -hmm. tool set. When you work on a yep. mat and you can do kind of a joint mobilization with compression with your feet or whatever, I'm just broadening your tool set. Mm -hmm. The students are often quite taken aback to realize that I can put somebody in a static hold on a mat that's more akin to something like craniosacral therapy than it is what they think I'm teaching, which is these extremely deep compressions. Right. And then when they go, well, how did you know to, and I go, I just communicate with the client and base yeah. the pressure, the tools on various things. What do I think in that moment is going to be most effective for the client and what's easiest on my body? The, right. the more I did that, even my own community of time massage teachers were like, that's not traditional. And I like, I, I live in central Texas, man. Like none of this is traditional to Texas. Yeah. Like yeah. I just help people the, the, yeah. the clients love it. The therapists then say, I don't understand. This isn't massage. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> Like, I'm trying to help people get better here. Like, I learned yeah. how, and this is a conversation recently, I've had this one as well, relaxation. People would have conversations because I tend, in my practice, to focus on pain management and mobility. I'm not as focused on relaxation, but it's not that my work isn't relaxing. If anything, <laughs> I would ask Kristen or other students, you know, what, what do you find more? And they're like, dude, I hate, I hate going to get table work. And I'm like, okay, why? And they're like, I just don't, it just, it's, it's annoying. Like it doesn't help me with my stuff. And I'm like, okay, so you find what we're doing on a mat to be more relaxing. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, why don't I mark it for relaxation? And this is that communication thing expanded to the level of marketing and advertising. Right. There's a whole industry of massage therapists <laughs> selling relaxation. If mm -hmm. people's conception of relaxation is being on a table naked underneath sheets and oil and soffited lighting, lighting yep. and candles, <clears throat> that's not really what I offer. So it's like, okay, I think it's a better use of my time to communicate with the clients and help them with chronic pain stuff that I might be a little bit more skilled at being able to help people with. Yeah. As my practice gravitated that way, it wasn't that I thought the work was less relaxing. It was just, it wasn't a good marketing shtick for me to try to grab people's attention. What I could say is, listen, if you have a, a problem with some sort of pain management or mobility, you feel stiff, tight, you're coding at a keyboard and you have a tight neck, I'd love to be able to work with you and help you with chronic pain. That's what I have experience with sure. and that's what I enjoy working on. Right. I also got clients who instead of, and I see this a lot with therapists, they want to be sometimes it feels like service providers instead of problem solvers. Right. Right. And when Which I say service, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Service providers, basically you're doing what the, the client or the patient tells you to, 
which is fine, right? I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, people are willing to pay really good money for that. So you'd be a fool not to at least consider that. But I think there's a difference between, you know, actually, I think there should be somewhere in the middle. The client needs to have input. It's not like a them or us. They tell us what to do or we tell them what's necessary, right? Can't you find a place in between? That's just my opinion on all that. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. And relaxation to me, and I, and I think I'm going where you're going here. I don't see the wall between relaxation work and, and call it what you want, clinical work. Because it, it, should we not be allowing or encouraging or swaying our person, patient into a parasympathetic response to what we're doing? Because does parasympathetic um, activation cause other cyclical things to occur that can benefit pain, benefit from movement, benefit from all the things that are, that are medically related patients are coming in for? Somehow that, that thought that relaxation is just fluff and buff. It's just absurd, all right? In some ways, maybe relaxation is one of the common denominators that we're giving our patients because, Robert, if you're looking, if you're seeking deep pressure, and if I am touching you with that nickel of pressure of craniosacral therapy, I might be just irritating the crap out of you, raising your sympathetic response in terms of, of fight or flight type stuff and just agitation. And it may not be relaxing for you at all, even though I think this is what's best for Robert. I, I think we need to just have more communication and understand that relaxation is a lot more than just you know, tuning out for an hour. Relaxation is allowing the body go into to the parasympathetic state where a lot of both motor learning principles are possible as well as changes from top down can happen and where our, our, a more neurocentric and behavior-based approach can really kick in. I, I think the two are a lot more enmeshed, relaxation and clinical work, a lot more enmeshed than, than really people want to believe. Even the, the clinical, you know, the, the sessions I do these days are three hours long which therapists are like, dude, are you insane? That's like too much tissue work. And I go, I'm not interacting with tissue with an elbow and yeah. oil in somebody's back for three hours. I'm going to work on a problem area for 30 minutes and then back mm -hmm. off and work on their hips and work on their legs and work on their feet. And then I'm going to traction their arms and work around the shoulder blade and then go back into the low back again so I can work it a second time. Mm -hmm. When they see the full form, they go, oh, it's like, yeah, it's just a slightly different service. And the whole time you're talking, all I can think is one of the main difference I think in my work is I keep going, how does that feel? Mm -hmm. Would you like a little more pressure or a little less? And you influence this, this manner of speaking. I, I, once I understood this, and I don't remember exactly at what point, what class I picked it up, it was like I'd hook into something and go, listen, if I, if I shear up towards your head or down towards your feet, which is more? And they're like, ooh, man, the, the up towards my head. And I go, okay, cool. When I, when I shear up that way, like, would you prefer that this was be like pointier or more broad? And they're like, yeah. can you make it a little sharper? And I'm like, cool. And I would kind of lean in just a little bit. And what happened was there was no doubt that I was getting the right spot. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just opened up the community and they're like, you know, I've never had a therapist like communicate with me before. And yeah. I go, oh yeah, I, it's just, I work on a lot of chronic pain and that's what I've had problems with. And I don't like when somebody, it's like, it's kind of like I have an itch on my back and I say, we scratch yeah. my back and they go, okay. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah. when yeah. they go right to that spot, it's like, oh, thank you so much. It's very soothing. Right. 
the th- the interesting piece about about including the patient like that, and one of my favorite things that I unfortunately I see happen a lot in our our shared professions, right? Let's let's pretend we're evaluating someone's neck, right? And we're doing our whole palpation gig, and and we're we're playing left and right, left and right, and you're thinking to yourself as the clinician, it's like holy crap, this right side is really, really tight, you know, and it's like, and then you, in my old way, I would start voicing to them what I'm feeling in terms of right-sided cervical fascial restriction, right? And, you know, the patient's saying, well, I'm not really feeling it over there. I'm feeling it over here, or my pain is on the left. And what we all say, we, we I'm going to, I don't want to assume too much. I was taught basically to say, well, you're feeling it on that other side, but the problem is over here. You, it's like, you don't know your body. You don't know your fascia like I do. What do I know? I'm just feeling a palpatory sense that this side feels tighter to me, but what are they feeling? What's relevant to them? And that's what really shifted from how I used to do that myofascial release work to how I do this. You know, you, you still look at what I'm doing. It looks like myofascial release, but how I do it now, it's like, it's not about the expertise of me. It's, it's about your feeling about what's important. So if, if we go into that left side of your neck and say, you know what, Walt, that is really, you've, you've nailed it. And I'm thinking, you know, this feels all soft and loosey goosey. How can it be the problem? But I can't ever feel my patient what they're feeling. I can't feel what they feel. feel. I can't live their experience. I've not lived their past and their present. I don't know what happens when I touch them there. And for me to say, well, you're feeling the pain on the left, but the problem is really on the right. I just think that that's crap. I really do think that's crap. Trying to basic rationalize our own beliefs that, okay, I know what I'm talking about. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're feeling the symptom and not the cause. And there's the causation trap again. We just, we, we open these doors for ourselves and, and we just fall right in with people who have taught us these concepts that are just, they're implausible and impossible to really validate. But yet, this crap comes out of my mouth on a daily basis, right? Oh, the problem, you feel it over there, but the problem really lies here. Where, where do I start? People say, well, where do you start with someone? I start where my patient tells me. Instead of saying, okay, we got to start the feet. We got to start the, at the pelvis or whatever, right? I'm going to start the place that you feel your issues lie. And you may not have any idea, but we're going to work on that. Am I going to have to take some of that power in, in, in the evaluation? Absolutely. But I, the model of shared decision-making is so underplayed in our education. Even though people say, well, I checked in, how's the pressure? They think they're getting, you know, they're getting the patient's input. I think how's the pressure is probably the lamest question you can ask, at least as a standalone, right? At least as a determinant of, is this relevant? How's the pressure? If you're asking, if that's the only question, I think you're missing the boat. How's the pressure? Would you like more? Would you like less? Am I connecting with this pressure to what you came in for? Am I connecting to a feeling that you will feel helpful? Let is how's the pressure just be the very tip of the iceberg of where your questioning goes, where your where the relationship goes. Sorry, I'm wandering a little bit here. I no, apologize. No, no. The, the therapists I work with, I, I see this all the time. They come to me from, and I, I'm making certain assumptions here, and this is a broad categorization. Yep. They come in from <clears throat> massage school, and they always think I'm working where my hands are. Whereas I do a lot of things where I'm grabbing limbs, either arms or legs, to traction, pull, turn, cajole, open different areas of the body. So sometimes they have low back pain, and this is me. Instead of having the person lay down face first on a table and you put pressure you know, in their back, 
I go, hey, they're completely clothed. And I go, lay down on your back. And they're like, yeah, man, I just told you my mm. low back hurts. And I go, I know. I have 20 years in pain management. Just give me, give me five minutes. Right. You're, you're having problems with your low back. And I, especially it's just like a big, broad, kind of diffuse. It's not specific. I'll grab a leg and then pull the leg up and over to like kind of twist them to one side. And as I pull them over, I go, hey, do you, do you feel that in your low back? In other words, if I'm just holding the leg, they see this on camera, the students, and they go, I don't understand why he's working on their leg. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm not working on their leg. I'm using the leg as a handle to reach down into the pelvis and the low back. Right. What I have to do is connect that to what the client feels. And if, when I pull them to one side and there's no real response, I'll get the other leg, go to the other side, and they go, oh. And I go, what is that right there? And they're like, that's that, oh, that's that spot in my low back. And yep. I go, yep. is that feel like it's helping? And they're like, yeah. And then the process of communication and connection and working out their specific itch is like, hey, Leah, yep. right there? Yep. Oh, yep. Yep. thank you so much. But it took a little bit of changing the client's perception of the service itself. Yeah. Like when I worked in a chiropractor's office, which is really where my practice started to take off, because I had to figure out how to communicate with them. As an artist, all massage therapists, as an artist, depending on where we want to go, I don't expect their painting to look like mine. My physical structure, technique, manual, muscle strength, flexibility, right. wrist structure is all different. I'm trying to get them to be their own artists, which includes their emotional set, psychological set, how they relate to people. I'm encouraging them to communicate. I just try to explain to them, listen, whatever you do, it needs to connect to the person's discomfort that they've come in for. Mm -hmm. And even though traditionally, if you look at my intro tie work, we start at the feet because you open the energy lines through the feet. And I try to give them the sequence while saying, listen, what happens when it gets really good and you break the sequence? And now I communicate with the client and I improvise the session based on my many tools on what I think is going to be best for the client with connection and communication of me meditating, breathing, undulating, swaying open my spine and releasing my own physical tension while I work, not developing carpal tunnel syndrome, which drives right. me completely insane on massage therapy groups, by the way. Like, I'm like, guys, we've already solved this problem, but you're not, like, you're telling me the answer is not what you want. In other words, mm -hmm. we don't really want to change what we do. And I'm like, not only do I think you can get better clinical outcomes and make more income, I think you can also ease your own physical strain. And they're like, that's yeah. absurd. What you teach isn't massage. And I go, all right, next. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, it, you know, get, get tagging along on that, too. I think a lot of times when people talk about transitioning to, oh, maybe a more neurocentric approach or a pain science approach or some of these other approaches, it, it's almost like the thought that what they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is less than, what they're doing is a lie. And I, I think that's the part that needs to really be taken a look at. It's like, I still do with my hands what I've done since I learned it in 1992. Yeah. Um, I just, 
I'm thinking differently. I'm explaining it differently. Is my definition or is my explanation better than that original Mafasha release explanation? Well, if you're asking me, it's it's more plausible. Is it is it shown to be more accurate? Nobody knows the full answer yet, right? Are you comfortable with uncertainty? I, I am. I'm really comfortable with uncertainty. I'm really comfortable not knowing. If you talked to me 15 years ago as a patient, I would sound really smart because I would have told you all about the fascia and what was wrong with your fascia and why nobody else in the world has ever been able to find your problem because they don't dance around the fascia like I do, okay? If you talk to me now, I'm going to sound a lot less informed but I'm probably a lot more well-informed because I'll, I'm going to let you know that, you know what, some people might think it's this or this or this, but ultimately there's a great deal of uncertainty. Number one, what's wrong with you? And number two, what happens when we, when we treat, all right? I still do those hands-on things, except I include the patient in a, in a very different way than I was taught. Not that in MFR, we didn't include a patient. But it was all about staying really quiet so the patient could go deep and process their emotional past and present and figure out all the, the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? I'm a lot of work. As a, as a patient, I'm a lot of work because I, I need a lot of input from you to assure that what we're doing is relevant and useful and not just a bunch of stuff that I think is important. So, you know, none of these approaches, I don't think, require you to abandon what you've learned. Maybe just sort of reframe what you learn. Because the things that we do with our hands are helpful. Why is it, though, that we can do so many different things with our hands, and in your case, your feet, are also helpful? Is it really the story that, 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 our, that our historical narrative taught us, or is it the common denominators? And that's what we're getting at the, here, I think. Yeah, the students, the students, again, it feels like sometimes they want magic. And I go, listen, mm. Carl Sagan, you're made of star stuff. It's already magic. Mm -hmm. You're alive. Yeah. Yeah. It is 2021. Yeah. Like you are, you are the, the lotto winner in a thing called biology. Mm -hmm. You're alive. It's already magic. I took sin lines, which are the basic lines that I teach in my intro tie workbook. I didn't feel like when I was teaching the work that I don't teach them sin lines. Cause I'm like, no, no, no. That's part of time massage. The Sibsen is a, a core piece. Let me include the Sibsan and then sort of like help them like reinterpret what's going on with soft tissue here. Reinterpret what's going on with the nervous system. And after your work, even more so, it was like I'd work on the leg and there's a line that goes up the, the tibia <clears throat> on the inside of the calf, basically around the gastrox. And you, you work this line by palm press and finger press. And what happened was, and I wrote this in one of my workbooks, I'm like, what happens when you get tired? Because Walt, I... I wanted to heal people, Walt. I worked mm -hmm. so hard to be like Jesus. I worked so hard to be able to heal people. And, you know, if, if I didn't raise people from the dead and whatever, I was disappointed. And here's what I did. I got tired. And when I got tired, I would lean into that same line and then go like up towards the knee or very controversial down towards the foot. Oh, no, no. The lines only go up the body. They go up and out the top of the head, sound familiar, and then up and out the hands. But sometimes, based on whatever the clients, they're like, ooh, right there. So sometimes it was like right. I would grab the line and C-bend it. Mm -hmm. And then the students are like, well, I don't understand. How do you know? And I'm like, anatomy is a framework. The nervous system is a framework. The sin lines are a framework. Now, I want you to use a technique and communicate with the client.
Yeah, because it's basically a, a fourth framework and probably the one that's most underused and undervalued in our shared professions. You know, when we're, when they come to us as the expert, it is so freaking easy to put your cloak of, of healer on and view yourself as the master. And it really drives me crazy how a lot of get myself in trouble with stuff like this, but, you know, lines of training bestow the title of master on someone. And it's like, boy, there's nothing more self-limiting than, than thinking of yourself as a master. You know, I, I've taken a lot of education, a lot of training. I continue it. I'm kind of a lifelong learner, but the more I know, the less of which I'm certain. Right? Yes. And the one thing that I want to make sure that I include in all of that is basically the undervalued piece that my patient has to offer this. And I tell you what, they're not always willing um, partners. It takes some work sometimes to get them to actually tell you what they're feeling, telling you what they hope for or fear, telling you things that may at first sound foolish and they may be a little reluctant to say that. You know, when I ask a question, what are you feeling? Sometimes they'll, they'll spend a little moment or two saying, oh, how can I make this make sense? And I'll, and I'll, and I'll try to stop them right there. I said, don't try. Just tell me what you're feeling, right? Give, give me the, the non-filtered version because it's going to be a little bit more, a lot more accurate than you trying to frame it from the, the framework of a medical practitioner, whoever we are. I, I want to have that open communication that any good relationship has, whether it's a personal communication or professional relation, or I'm sorry, personal relationship or, or professional relationship, which is really hard because some patients, they don't expect it. They're not, or they're not willing to go that far. Or, you know, then there's the other person who nods their head that they're going to tell you, for instance, if something is too much, if it's too much pressure, but yet there's something from their past, and I'm not playing Sigmund Freud here, but there's something from their past that keeps them from being able to feel safe or able to say no to you. And if you simply rely on your patient doing what you told them to do, which is to say, tell me if this is too much, you know, there's a small percentage of people who will never open their mouth because it's not safe, for instance, to tell a man no. And I've encountered those patients on my table and it takes a lot of work to stay in the moment with that person. So you can really tell, is this helpful? Is this hurtful? Do you feel safe? Do you feel like you want me to do something differently? If they're physically and emotionally not able to tell me that tough work, but pretty damn good work, you know, for the students in class, I can see them. And I'll scan the room, and I, I'd say that my sequence is it's kind of like I'm teaching to the 70%, which means mm -hmm. I think most people can do this, and most people can move this way on the mat, and most people have enough mobility and strength to do this. And then I look around, and I see one student, and they're kind of, I'm physically looking at them, and I've learned to tune my eye to this. They're kind of struggling with something. And I'll go over and go, hey, what's what's going on? Like, are you... Are your hips tight? Or like, what? And they're like, nah, I had this old knee injury. And I go, oh, okay, so like what happened? And they're like, oh, I twisted my knee years ago. And when I sit like this, it hurts a little bit. And I go, oh, okay, well, let's change it. So I've taught them the sequence, but then I have to alter it to fit their body. So in other words, do I teach sequences and you do the sequence the way you're taught? Or do I modify the sequence to the individual? Very controversial mm -hmm. in yoga, by the way. And I go, listen, let's, let's use a yoga blanket. Let's, let's turn this a certain way. And what we're going to do is I'm going to have you work on the same thing in a slightly different way. And I want to see if this feels better on your knee. And I show them and they're like, whoa, you mean there's like more than one way to do it? Mm -hmm. And I go, yes, there's more yeah. ways than I can even potentially 
In other words, I'll sometimes ask them, let's say I think, you know, they're having problems with their adductors. Do they respond better to a compression? Do they respond better to a compression with shear? Do they respond better to a mobilization? Do they respond better to a stretch? Which one do I use? And I'm like, you'll notice I didn't say that any of these techniques are superior to the others. What connects with the clients? Yeah. And yeah. They're like, oh, it's so complicated. And I'm like, in some so, ways, so it's easy. super simple. But yeah. you said something that was very attuned to me intellectually as a philosophy student. You sat in class and you thought and you questioned and thought experience and you thought and you questioned and you thought and you questioned to the point where it, you had less firm belief yeah. than when yeah. you came in. And that's really troubling for a lot of people. Oh, and right? it wasn't for me. I'm very yeah. comfortable with it. But when I come into a class <laughs> like Socrates asking questions, they yeah. want to put me to death. <laughs> yep. yep, yep. It's an interesting um, aspect that I think is a, a, a bad segue here, but I want to jump off on a different topic. <laughs> um, there's a really interesting, I think, overlap in the kind of work that I do and the kind of work that you do in that in that the touch is often sustained. We're, we're engaged with somebody for a long period of time, almost with a stillness, right? You're, you're, you're in something and it could be moving, it could be being stationary. And, you know, the concept of why of us as clinicians is often thought of as, as a technical model of somebody applying a technique, almost in the research model as the researcher as observer, right? Oh no, we're, we're applying this technique to somebody versus the concept of the researcher as participant, right? Because we are participants in the therapeutic engagement and to, re, to think that we can somehow separate ourselves is, is, is naive at best. And I, I sometimes get asked about the effect of our attention with a patient or intention, if you will, right? Because in my trainings, and I'm sure you're, you're somewhat similar based on how you learn, you know, the thought that us being present and grounded and centered and all those things will improve the therapeutic relationship, improve the therapeutic outcome. And they're often explained in, in some, what I would consider esoteric ways, how grounding, how presence, how centering affects the relationship. And, you know, I don't think there, there was ever any doubt that being present with somebody has more of an impact than being distracted, you know, thinking about where you're going for dinner while you're treating, although our mind drifts, right? But that, that whole concept always bothered me where that I, I, I saw the, the, I saw the process having effect that if I'm attuned to what's going on, that the patients seem to benefit from it. But my, my annoyingly scientific mind wanted to say, well, why, right? Is it really because, you know, of all those esoteric things that you and I may have been taught, and there's nothing wrong with those lines of reasoning. But then, you know, here I go back into the research realm. Back in 2017, there was a paper published by uh, a researcher by the last name of Saratelli, and we're going to link this in the show notes. Robert, the study was done where they put the person on a table, a patient on a table, and they have many patients, and they basically hooked up their brain or hooked up their head so they can monitor brain activity. And what they were looking for was what happened to the patient's brain? How did brain activity change or not change when somebody touched them? And the touch was administered from, basically, they, they, they blocked off the person so they couldn't see the person touching their ankle. And the control group was the person touching their ankle was had earphones on and they were being blasted with sound, okay, so that they couldn't the, the, the mandate of the clinician was simply to touch the person's ankle. You're not doing anything. You're just putting your attention into the touch. And they found that in the group that 
that where the clinician was being blasted with noise, the, the more, you know, they watched the patient's brain and nothing changed. Nothing changed at all because the, the clinician wasn't basically attending. But in the, in the, in the test group, where the clinician had no headphones, where they were, to sim- they were able to simply attend to their touch at the patient's ankle. What they saw through the research was that the patients, and they call it the attentive centers of the brain, the attentive centers of the brain being part of the foundational aspect of why people change, which is what you and I go for when we treat, right? What they found was that in essence, the longer the person touched with continuous touch, the more that gate opened up where the, the attentive centers, and what was really cool was it, it kind of did back down. And now, uh, I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person of cherry picking evidence. You know, we go and look for things that support our biases, whether it's, you know, scientific or social or religious, right? We, we love to support our own biases and confirm them. But to me, this paper, number one, it put into a little bit more academic framework what happens when we're attentive to our patient. But also, it, it gave me a maybe a little bit of motivation to say maybe at least for certain parts of patient behavior and patient outcomes that a longer sustained touch might be more or differently impactful than shorter sustained stretch, whether it's strokes or poking people or whatever it is we're doing. And, you know, how do you, how do you integrate evidence into an art-based practice? And I think that's the way right there, looking at how we work and how it affects our patient's brain doesn't make us change what we're doing because I'm still touching people in the same way. But at least now I have a little bit more data on on why my patient might be responding to that touch. So anyway, that was just, sorry, that came up on my screen here and it was a total bad segue from where we were at. But I think that the uniqueness of, of touches, various touches can be you know singled out in the evidence with good quality explanations, which is more my bias versus the esoteric ones that I was brought up in this manual therapy field. There's so many layers. I remember sitting with you, I think over lunch at a class. And as you talked to me about the science, you just stopped and said something extremely succinct. And I think it's from years of practice of discussing these things verbally through your classes. You said, Robert, the science doesn't change what we do in session. It mm-hmm. changes why we think what we're already doing works to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, no, that's, no, that's perfect. That's, like, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. It was just this refining process of going, huh. You know, because I, I was taught in school, like we're working on the bicep, but it's like, no, that actually makes a little bit of sense. Like you're contacting through skin and they're feeling it in a certain area of their body. And I'm not negating what they're feeling or what I'm doing, but we're changing the distinction and definition about what may actually be happening from that contact. And then I go, wow, science is interesting. What does the research say? As soon as I say that in class, they're like, no, no science. No, we want, we want magic. I'm like, oh, guys. But can't you have both? Right. Can, can you have both? And magic, maybe not the right word, right? Because um, magical thinking is certainly not what we're after. But I think the magic and the art have a little, uh, more than a little, I think there's some overlap there, right? I, I personally think there's magic in science. You yes. know, I really do. And that's, and that's, that's the magic, that's the magic that I'm going for. And it doesn't negate the art of what you and I do. It doesn't in- negate the, the relationship that we build with people. Right. But I, to me, the science, the evidence and coming from a more foundational framework of a plausible explanation, 
course, plausible tends to be, you know, uh, somewhat subjective, right? My plausible explanation isn't yours. And I kind of, you know, I'm going to respect what you and anybody else has to say. But I think we can kind of, we can kind of, you know, find a sweet spot, much like I have. It used to be all fascia based and then all neurocentric, annoying based. And now I'm, I'm in the middle. And it's like, you know what? I'm working with a human being and all of their tissues and all of their issues and all of their, all of their contextual factors and all of their, everything else in terms of their past and present. And I'm not working on a tissue in distress anymore. I'm working on a person in distress. Just try to remember that I was a former philosophy student. <laughs> Having those conversations work just fine for me. And just because of my own experiences as an educator, uh, my own experiences as a therapist, coming into the work from a philosophy background in chronic pain changed the focus of what I was looking for in the education itself. Mm -hmm. I already had like a different background, just like anybody else would. There were some students who just wanted a job where they made a little bit more than fast food that they thought was working in a relaxing environment. Not, not that there's anything wrong with those things at it's all. Not. No. It just changes what they're going to draw out of the education. Yeah, yeah. Great. One of the, the bigger challenges recently is COVID, of course, has just been like a, a bomb dropped on the industry. I don't think the massage industry in particular has completely recovered. And then I, even more so, I was already teaching online, but I really, I had time now because there were no clients. There were no in-person classes. So I got to work with cameras and software and technology. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, I'm teaching from four camera angles live over YouTube. And they're like, no, we can't learn online. And I'm like, is a book online? Mm -hmm. Like that's a transmutate, like the printing press was a really pivotal invention. Like we're conveying ideas through a language and written text in a way that wasn't particularly available, you know, at least papyrus, but you couldn't, you know, replicate it the same way. Right. And then it was like, no, I don't think that the online process of education is necessarily superior. It just has different advantages. And they're like, well, I learn more from hands-on. And I'm like, yeah, when I'm teaching from four camera angles, you can put as many massage therapists in your room and work with them for hands-on feedback as you want. And they go, no, but, I, and here's what I'm hearing. I want to accrue, accrue travel costs, take up more time, and be able to have you magically touch me. And I go, listen, I also want to work with you hands-on, mm -hmm. but when I have a thousand people in a hands-on class, I'm not going to have time to interact with you individually. Right, right. Like we can form satellite groups and I can teach you every month for 75% less. That has been a fundamental divide because I am still just pressing the button on online education and it's like, it's, it's breaking down because they're yeah, like, no, I, yeah. I prefer hands-on. And I'm like, I hate to say this, but what is hands-on? And they're like, yeah. no, you don't know. I'm like, okay, listen, you want hands-on pay me. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. here. You can come work with me. It'll cost $600 for the day, but we're cool. Yeah. It's like, I can teach you for a fraction of the cost in an ongoing way with supplementation. I might add, because they think it's, I just teach online and it's like, no. I'm just using the available tools to give students information to continue to supplement their educational process and allow them to find their own level. I have workbooks yep. and DVDs. Do I get angry when a student buys the DVD but doesn't buy the workbook? No. 
and I'll ask them, listen, like, I don't learn from reading. And I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, no, you don't want to buy the workbooks, and that's not going to be a good use for you. If you learn more via video, then it's like multifaceted education that's also right, right. in different mediums that connects with the person. I mean, we're making a podcast. Do I expect everybody to listen to this podcast? No. But that's also why I cut clips, because some people will see a little video in their Facebook feed and go, oh, that was great, you know. Maybe, yeah. maybe they want to listen to it later. It's just there are different portals of entry. One of the most frustrating things to me in the past two years is I'm hammering online education. And not only is it not accepted, it's actively vilified by mm -hmm. lots of school owners because I think just like the rest of education, they feel educational structure is starting to break down because of yeah. the internet and they fear the loss of control. And income. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I really admire that entrepreneurial aspect of what you've done with this platform. And not to sound like I'm just like building you up here, but I really, it's, it's. I really, I, I admire that in what you've done and the risk you've taken with it because I think it's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's. You know, it's pretty unique in in our shared industries, but it's a cool model and uh, and it's a really effective one. Do some people learn better live, hands on? Probably, yeah, you know, how much of it though is us saying, no, I only learn hands-on instead of experiencing that, you know, I went through what you did last year with COVID and saying, you know, geez, my, my practice is dead because my pay, you know, my patients aren't coming in. My seminars, you know, all got canceled. Everybody wanted refunds. That's a scary place to be. So Ooh, you, know, yes. you start, you start <laughs> yeah, you know, you start building a product and I, you know, I, I, it took me a lot longer than you and, and I don't have the amount of, of product that you do, but, you know, I built a couple of online classes and, you know, I, I, years ago I did some online, um, online trainings for Medbridge Massage. And, you know, before I did that, it's like, oh, I don't really think I can translate this work into, into online training, but the feedback was really quite nice from that. And then, you know, I started building my own product instead through, through my, you know, in, ter in terms of my own platform. And it was really fascinating. You know, might the therapist benefit at some point from coming to me for a live class as well? Absolutely. You know, especially if they don't have any, because I'm, I'm reaching a different market. You know, my, a lot of my seminars are marketed to speech pathologists who have zero zero hands-on manual therapy experience. So they don't have a framework of a touch-based model. So some of them may benefit more from at some point getting some live hands-on help. But then a lot of, you know, to make that sweeping assumption and generalization is totally incorrect because a lot of the feedback I get that, you know, you can learn online, you can begin to do this. And, you know, you start building from whether it's the book or the DVD or the workbook or the online training, or the, the hands-on course, where I think the best model is just starting with your own patients and, you know, the, the stuff that you're teaching your students is just, you just start doing it. And, you know, they're going to evolve your work into places you never envisioned. And that's how my um, students, the learners that, that learn with me are, you know, they take this work in places I never envisioned it happening. And I just think that is the most, one of the most gratifying aspects of my role as an educator is whether it's the person with incredibly dis, incredible dysfunction from a, a stroke or that elite level performer who somebody's using my work with them and before and after every concert they do every night. I mean, that, that's, that is just such a rush in what you and I are able to do. And yeah, I'm pretty, I feel pretty grateful for that. I thought when I started a practice years ago, the frustration would be getting out of debt, coming out of poverty, the, the grind, right? No. The hard part is 
I'm running four cameras live and I have no geographic borders. I can teach globally. Mm -hmm. And essentially, statistically, according to Earth's population, there aren't any students. Yeah. I'm like, dude, it's it's over. Like yeah. we in other words, I solved a problem. Like yeah. I'm I'm working from four camera angles and like flipping cameras live and showing people how to work do stuff. I'm also taking like we're in Zoom right now having this conversation. I can run all my cameras into Zoom, so I'm doing live consults with a single student. So I'm working on a model, they're working on a model, and Liv was the first one to do this in New Jersey. We did the the live stream class, the interactive like this. I'm flipping camera angles, putting anatomy on screen. It's all completely seamless. The next day, she's like, oh my God, Robert taught me and I didn't even have to leave my studio. And I'm like, yeah, yeah it's so cool. You know, it's so cool. Yeah. The reach you, you can have is pretty amazing. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still, you know, a dinosaur. I'm still teaching, you know, basically live, but yeah, it's what I enjoy. It's, uh, you know, I don't have that reach, but it, I, you know, we're, we only define our place in all this. And, you know, I've got the online products available, my own and the Medridge stuff. And, you know, there'll be more coming in the future. But, uh, you know, you, you got to find that point of equilibrium that really makes you happy and satisfied. And, you know, we all have our frustrations. We talk about this stuff offline and the frustrations of the industry and, and et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, you know, if you love what you do, I mean, you know, it's it's a good day's work, right? Yeah. Oh, and I still I still love it. There's a reason I work so hard at it. It's just a weird construct like the way my brain interprets well we can't learn online i'm like i don't know what that means like yeah, i don't yeah like yeah. in the age of wikipedia yeah. articles and <laughs> yeah. podcasts yeah. yeah 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 so do you have any uh closing thoughts before i let you go i don't know what do you want me to close with well i mean let's put it this way you've been you've been working and teaching for many years what what makes you most excited about the work the stuff that you're like, yeah, like we could not talk about frustrations, but what makes you most excited these days when you work yeah. with students? You know what, it, 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 I, I use to kind of tell people at the beginning of every seminar, especially people who are brand new to manual therapies, which I get a lot of those people, is the thing that someone thinks they came here for to this class is to learn you know, a, a new skill set of hands-on manual therapy. And I, cert I say, you know, it's certainly what I want you to leave with. What I want, really want you to leave with at the end of these two days is the ability to create that open, shared decision-making relationship with the patients. And a lot of people look at me like, I don't really get that. I don't know why that's more important than the hands-on stuff. And, you know, by the end of a class, I hope they understand that, that, that like we've been talking about for this hour, last past hour in it, and obviously you, it's, it's really gratifying that you include this stuff in your work now, Robert, is the, the fact that, that our patients do matter and elevating our patients' experience and values and, and expectations to a point where they're even with us when my student walks out of that room getting it, right? That it isn't just about the magic that we do with the tissues. It's about the magic, the relationship that we build with every patient. That's what really, it motivates me, it drives me, and it, and it gives me satisfaction in my work. The student's excitement. I see it every so often. Mm -hmm. When a student gets excited, not money, not, I mean, I had a happy client. No, like, when they're excited, like, yes, yeah. they have yeah. a, a eureka moment yeah. where something clicked and they've added something to their practice. It's better for the clients, better for pain relief, you know, easier on their body, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. To see that sort of excitement, that to me is the entrepreneurial bug. Yeah. 
Yeah. That that excitement, that's why I work for myself. It was like, how do I manifest more of that? Yeah. Yep. Cool. You know, I get I get feedback from patients like this, but I get pay, feedback from clinicians. When a patient says to me, when I'm going through the process that I use, I said, no one has ever wanted to know my opinion the way you do. And I get that feedback from students too, that there's something about the uniqueness of, of actually not just asking for an opinion, but valuing it and using that opinion immediately turn back into the interaction as it, it really does have value. You're not just placating them by asking their opinion, but their opinion drives the intervention. And, you know, I, I, I you know, the more I low the, know, the me- less of which I'm certain. And I think eventually that's all just going to evolve into I know nothing, but I'll know everything, you know. And, the, the, you know, the, 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 that's what my patients are basically telling me. It's like, you know, I know a lot, but I know nothing without you. And that's really what I'm looking for. And that's kind of become who I am from that. It's all about the fascia guy to it's all about the relationship, that the therapeutic relationship that we build with a patient or that I build with a learner to allow them to go take it across the bridge with their own patients. So that's really, really motivating for me. That's a great ending spot. Listen, thank you so much, Walt, for being on the podcast. You can hang out for just a second while I close this down. Thank you guys for listening to the Robert Gardner Wellness Podcast. Thank you again for Walt Fritz for coming on. I'll talk to you guys very, very soon.